Welcome to A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears, where we discuss mysteries, histories, and occasionally conspiracies. I'm your host, Ollie. And I'm your co-host, Belle. Today's trigger warnings include communism and Soviet Russia, death, discussions of injuries, and corpse decay. And you may have been able to guess from that, if you are into this enough, that this is the case of the Dyatlov Expedition, a mysterious event killing nine Russian hikers slash skiers in 1959 in the Ural Mountains. Just discovered both of my, or just thought of <laughs> both of my cases that I've done this week are within two years of each other, like pretty close. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Interesting. So I, I don't know how much this is going to come up, so I might cut this out if it doesn't. <laughs> okay. But if it does come up, I have spent, or I spent about 10 months I was about to say 10 years. That's not true. <laughs> I've spent about 10 months living in Russia in high school. And I was conversational in Russian, in Russia, in Russian by the time I got back. But I have let that part of my brain rot. So, <laughs> so I think I have, like, I still, I can still read Cyrillic, no problem. And there are things that live in my brain that will never die, you know? <laughs> But, grocery code for bananas, forty eleven. Oh yeah. So basically, I'm trying to say like, I like I don't know if it's gonna come up, but if it does come up, that I kind of sometimes speak Russian, kind of sometimes know some of the cultural differences. Yeah. And I have spent time living fairly close to Siberia, not in Siberia, but pretty close. Um, I didn't want it to be like a jarring thing every time. <laughs> yeah. And I will, again, I will cut this out if it never comes up. This is also me saying I feel decently confident about my pronunciation of Russian stuff, but I never reached the point where I was fluent. I was, I would have described myself as conversational, <laughs> you know, w even when I was at, like, I knew it the best. Russian is a complicated as fuck language, like, don't even get me started. <laughs> so, it is 1959 in Soviet Russia, the USSR. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, weirdly, like when I was looking into this, I was like, I don't think I ever had the perception, which this is probably just learning about Soviet Russia in America. We never heard that it was good for the people. You know what I mean? That people were ever happy about being mm -hmm. in Soviet Russia. But this time in Soviet Russia was actually good <laughs> like generally speaking for the people people were really optimistic mm -hmm. so this was between 1953 and 1964 nikita khrushchev began a period of de-stalinization that was called is called khrushchev's thaw basically he kind of relaxed a lot of the censor censorship there was a lot less repression and he released a lot of political prisoners from stalin's gulags it was a time of really strong economic growth. Um, the standard of living was rising. Sputnik had just done its thing and bolstered national confidence. Especially, I thought this was this was so funny. The U.S. being so shocked that it worked <laughs> made Russians go "fuck it," like yes, <laughs> which I was Honestly, like, "good for you." Even, like, doesn't even surprise me. I'm That's like, yeah. Yep, I get he it. We would do the same. Oh, <laughs> like, absolutely. We did do the same. Yeah. Like, 
So I just thought that was really funny, but I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so Igor Dyatlov um, was a 23-year-old college student. Jesus, he was that young? Yeah. I didn't even realize. He's, yeah, these, all of these people are very young. Fucking A, dude. So he really loved camping in the outdoors. He was an engineering student at Ural Polytechnic Institute, or UPI, if I say UPI, <laughs> that's what it is. It was in Sverdlovsk, which is now Yekaterinburg. I don't think I've ever been to Yekaterinburg, um, but I know my dad has been. So mm. it's up basically like not in the Urals, but it's pretty close, you know, like mm -hmm. right up against the Urals. The engineering program at UPI was a really, really good program. There were lots of the graduates. Oh, I thought there was a cat. <laughs> lots of the graduates went into nuclear power and weapons industries, uh, communications, and military engineering. So, like, genuinely, like, in the USSR, those are, I would say, industries that were probably pretty in demand, you mm -hmm. know? And also very growing like do you know what i mean yes, <laughs> do you know I, the word i'm trying to find <laughs> no i i understand yeah. yeah igor was also part of the upi sports club with whom he or with which he had gone on hikes and camping trips trips before he had um there was this one article that described him as like an inventor a tinkerer but i read this kind of critique by one of the by somebody who knew him who basically said like it wasn't that dramatic, guys. Like, he just, he would buy, he bought, like, a camping stove once and made modifications to it. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't some, like, you know. MacGyver. MacGyver who, you know. And I think there is a certain amount of, like, he's dead now. <laughs> so people want him to be Sane this yeah. amazing figure that, you know, he was human. Mm -hmm. He... And he was only 23, right? So he... He wasn't even, like, a fully grown person yet. Yeah. He, in late 1958, he started to plan this 16-day cross-country ski trip through the Ural Mountains. He submitted that plan to the UPI Sports Club, who approved it. I saw in one article that it maybe could have felt to the UPI Sports Club, like it kind of exemplified the boldness and the vigor of the new Soviet generation. Mm -hmm. So Dyatlov then recruited eight other UPI students and recent grads. I think he had recently graduated. Maybe he was just a student. I don't remember. So Yuri Yudin was 21 and he was a student. Yuri Dor Doroshenko was also 21 and also a student. Alexander Kolevikov um, was 24, also a student. And then this person either went by Yuri or Georgie Krivonshenko, or Georgi, I think is how it would be pronounced, because they don't have, like, the J sound. Krivonshenko was 23. Yeah. <laughs> no, genuinely, like, this is very, very Russian in that there are three different Yuris. <laughs> he was pretty close to Krivonshenko, I mean, was pretty close to Dyatlov. He had recently graduated two years previously, he was kind of like a jokester, and he mm -hmm. played mandolin, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and at the time, he worked at the Mayak Nuclear Complex. 
complex in the then secret town of Chelyabinsk 40. Hmm. <laughs> then there's 22 year old Zaneda Komogorova, um, 23 year old Rustam Slobodin. <laughs> I don't, I think they, I don't know if they were graduated or if they were students. Um, Nikolai Thibault Brignol, who's 23, and he had French and French ancestry, which is why I have no freaking clue how to pronounce his last name. Um, he had recently graduated. Thibault Brignol. Yeah. Thibault. It was, it's spelled in Russian as um, Thibault Brignol, I think. Brignol. I think that's pretty damn close. I mean, yeah. Thibault Brignol. Um, that's just what the most horrific. American accent I can muster. <laughs> um, and Nikolai's... I'm just going to go with Nikolai, you know? <laughs> His father had been worked nearly to death in one of Stalin's camps mm. before, you know, That's things fine. got better. And 20-year-old Ludmilia, Ludmilia Dubinina was the youngest of the group. Um, she was an economics major and a track athlete and an outspoken communist. <laughs> She had been accidentally shot by a hunter in a previous trip and apparently was, like, completely cheery chipper the whole 50-mile journey back to civilization. That's metal as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> she wore her long blonde hair in two braids tied with ribbons. Like, she seemed like a badass. <laughs> and then there's just out of nowhere... <laughs> no, stop reading ahead! <laughs> I closed my laptop. This you is... happy? I will do my best to pay attention like this. <laughs> These are the reasons I don't want you to read ahead. <laughs> so, 37-year-old Semyon Zolotaryov was a last-minute addition by UPI administration a couple days before the start of the operation. Um, as far as I know, he didn't really know them, and he wasn't really associated with the school. Did you say how old he was? 37. Okay. He was a World War II veteran who is mostly, you know, like I said, unknown to the other group, other members of the group. He was mustached. He was tattooed. <laughs> he um, had steel caps on his teeth. <laughs> like, the whole nine yards. Imagine a Russian World War II veteran, and you've done it. <laughs> I'm just wondering who wrote this description. Um, honestly, I'm pretty sure it was the same article that described Dialov as an inventor which is why i tried to not take as much of like that what they said stuff. yeah i didn't take very much of what that article said about how they behaved mm -hmm. but i did take some about like physical descriptors yeah and there i feel yeah. I'll stay over here. <laughs> I feel pretty confident <clears throat> saying, um... Okay, hold on, what was his name? Kolevita. Oh. Um, that one. Yep. But I also, I feel pretty, um, confident saying that Krivonshenko was a, uh, kind of a jokester just because of some of the pictures. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I get you. So the plan for the trip was, it was supposed to be a trek through the Urals. The end goal was to summit Mount... Oh, Torton, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, which was about, or 
this hike was about 350 miles north of Sverdlovsk in traditional Mansi territory. The Mansi came in contact with the Russians in about the 16th century when Russia was expanding the control their control over Syria. Mm-hmm. And they were largely russified by the late 1950s, but they still maintained reasonably traditional ways of life, like hunting, fishing, reindeer herding, etc. Mm-hmm. Sounds like most Alaska Native tribes, you know? Yeah. Yupik and Denina. And... The Urals are a mountain range, goes north to south, dividing western Russia from Siberia and Europe, or from Siberia, and also divi- dividing Europe from Asia. <laughs> right? So, the plan was to ski about 200 miles through a birch and fir forest up to up into like kind of a more barren slope, you know, above the tree line. Mm-hmm. Which, for those of you who don't know, the tree line is like where you get so high up in elevation that the trees stop growing. Or so far north, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on what you're talking about. Yes. In this, it was elevation. Basically, you know, where the tundra starts. Mm-hmm. And the challenge about this trip was less about the terrain, which was reportedly actually like pretty easy, and it was more about the weather. Mm-hmm. It gets super, super cold. That February, apparently, it ranged from negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, There was deep snow, high winds ripping through the mountains, you know, all Mm -hmm. that jazz. Dyatlov told the sports club that the group would telegram as soon as they finish the trip um, in the village of Vijay, Vijay? On February 12th. Oh, why? You're saying it like a question, like I'm going to have the answer here. They all kind of kept kept diaries. And one member wrote, I wonder what awaits us in this trip. What will we encounter? On January 23rd, they depart Sverdlovsk by train. Some of them, I thought this was funny, hid under the seats to avoid paying for tickets. Um, I love that, like... When they describe this, I love keeping in mind that they're all that Semyon yeah. didn't know them. <laughs> so he's just like this World War II veteran just going along with these college students Basic, hitting under yeah. hiding under seats. Twenty to twenty four, <laughs> basically yeah. teenagers. And he's like, Yeah, sure. <laughs> <Fine>. <laughs> so Apparently, uh, they kept a communal journal, and then a lot of them also had individual journals, and then a lot of them also had cameras. So that's lots of these photos that I'm going to um, post. And that's... That's Kolevatov. Ah. So, you get what I mean with, like, he, he does seem like he'd be a jokester. Mm-hmm. On a layover... I mean, that's Krivonshenko, sorry. <laughs> On a layover, Krivonshenko is briefly detained... For pretending to panhandle playing mandolin in the train station. Which I also thought kind of tells you like the mood of the group. <laughs> Where they're at. Again, imagine Semyon just watching this, you know? <laughs> like, oh, fucking kids. So I'm gonna just, by the way, stick mostly with first names because they're easier for me to pronounce. Except Dyatlov and the Yuris. <laughs> so, after two days of train travel, they reach... Evedel, which is a rural town with a prison camp, which by that time was mostly, like, actual criminals and not political prisoners. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, a Stalin-era camp. 
it just wasn't stalin at that time (laughs) as much (laughs) so at that point they travel by bus then in the back of a truck and then finally they start skiing led by a horse-drawn sleigh they stayed in an abandoned logging camp overnight and then that is where on january 28th yuri yudin dropped out due to a sciatica flare-up so like his his joints were painful Mm -hmm. and he's like i can't do it which was probably a good call um that's him i wonder if he like survivor's guilt oh yeah (laughs) from what i've gathered oh yeah um yeah so based on the journals the group enters a then unnamed pass leading to mount batorten in the urals on february 1st and this was a super narrow pass that was known for howling winds, snowstorms, and that all caused super bad visibility. So this is in the pass. Mm-hmm. And this, um, I'm definitely going to post this because I think it shows very well the kind of visibility they were working with. Oh yeah, it's brutal. But it's basically, it's the picture, if you've looked up Dyatlov Pass, you've seen this picture. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just a line of skiers like leading up into the snow and i'm pretty sure like that looks like the line either ends or bends there yeah and not that just you're losing sight of the others because of the visibility but the visibility was so bad that they did kind of lose track where they were yeah and they ended up kind of skirting west kind of and end up on a mountain called height 1079 by the soviets or kolatsakil <laughs> I'm sorry, by Mansi, which, yes, was west of where they kind of wanted to end it up. So Kolat Syakil is a Mansi language phrase that means death mountain. Great. Yeah. Cool. Um, it sounded like they recognized that they had made this error, that they had kind of deviated, mm-hmm. but they decided to go ahead and camp on the slope they ended up on that yeah. night, probably just to, like, avoid losing altitude because they were tired, you know, because the weather was bad. (laughs) Yeah. So before we get into the incident, I want to tell you what happens next. But first, let's go to the ads. (laughs) (laughs) The UPI Sports Club, when they don't get this telegram the day that they're kind of expecting to, Mm -hmm. they kind of just assume that they were held up because, you know, there were reports of heavy snowstorms in the area. It is a difficult trek. So, yeah. they were just kind of like, it's okay. It's fine. It'll be fine. But after a few days, um, families are starting to call the university. And then a local, or the local bureau of the Communist Party. And, obviously, the families calling the Communist Party puts pressure on the university. <laughs> um, and they start actually getting worried. Mm-hmm. And decide that they need to go looking for, th- for them. On February 20th, 1959, the searches, plural, are launched. There are student volunteers with UPI, specifically a lot of them were from the sports club, prison guards, weirdly, from the Ivdel prison camp, Hmm. Um, local police, Mansi hunters, military, also brought in planes and helicopters. So, like, this was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, February 25th, the student volunteers found ski tracks 
Then February 26th, they find the tent. It is above the tree line, partially collapsed, and buried in snow. So this is... Also, if you've looked up Dyatlov Pass, you've also probably seen this photo. Sure have. Yep. This... Sorry. This, by the way, is the last picture ever taken of them. Mm. So, probably making camp is what it looks like to me. Mm -hmm. So, the students dig out the tent and they discover slashes in several places which looked deliberate. It was neat on the inside, contained all of their equipment, basically. Mm -hmm. Boots, axes, clothes, maps, cameras, journals, food laid out as if for a meal. About 100 feet downhill, um, they spot footprints of eight to nine people. Um, They appeared to be walking, not running, heading towards the tree line, and mostly in socks, barefoot, or there was one that had one ski boot, which is wild. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So about 600, 700 yards, like they continue about 600, 700 yards is what I mean, before they vanish near the tree line. I don't know if that's 100% true, but you know. In February 27th, the bodies of Krivonshenko and Doroshenko, Yuri Doroshenko, one of the three Yuris. Um, oh yeah, these are the Yuris is how I've been referring to them. Krivonshenko and Doroshenko found under a cedar tree at the edge of the forest beside an extinguished campfire. They were only wearing their underwear, apparently frozen to death with burn marks and abrasions, especially on their hands. Those Mm. abrasions, I mean, especially on their hands. About 12 to 15 feet up the cedar, you know, up to that height is what I mean. There are broken branches, torn skin and clothing that are found on the trunk. Then also on the 27th, the bodies of Dyatlov and Zineda Komogorova um, are found farther up the slope. They look like they're kind of facing the direction of the tent with their fists clenched. They're not right next to each other. They're like kind of spread out and appeared to be trying to return to the tent. Like that's just kind of the direction it looked like they were going. The first four autopsies were performed while the search continued. Dialov was described as having a, by the way, uh, trigger warning. This is, if you want to skip the parts where we talk about the bodies, you might want to skip the next few seconds. <laughs> um, so Dialov was described as having a brown purple complexion. Mm-hmm. There was gray liquid in his mouth and a gray foam coming from his right cheek. Zineda had a bat- baton shaped bruise on one of her sides and Krivonshenko had blackened fingers, third degree burns on one shin and foot, and a chunk of flesh bitten off his right hand in his mouth, which is wild. Yeah. Yuri Doroshenko had burned hair on one side of his head and a charred sock. All of them had cuts, bruises, scrapes, and abrasions. Um, several days later, Slobodin is discovered. Rustem Slobodin is discovered. Um, he also looks like he was heading back to the tent. He has a sock on one foot and a felt booty on the other. Mm. He's also cut, bruised, and scraped. He has a fractured skull that some sources described 
that it looked like a head injury consistent with falling is hitting his head multiple times. At this point, a homicide investigation is underway. Mm -hmm. Um, It is led by prosecutor Lev Ivanov, who's in his mid-30s. They do toxicology tests, witness statements, maps, and diagrams of the scene. Evidence is forensically examined. The tent and its contents are all removed by helicopter and set up again in the police station where, like, they can function. (laughs) Um, And I thought... I only saw this in one source, so take this with a grain of salt, but apparently a seamstress dropped by the precinct to fit a uniform and happened to notice that the tent was slashed from the inside. And I do... I think some people wonder how you can tell, but I think you probably can. Like, if you're cutting it in one direction, mm-hmm. the especially when it's freezing cold outside the the fabric kind of bends away from you you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i really don't think that's that weird that they can tell no i don't think so either because it's like the glass shatter patterns it's like you know you can tell if it's going in or out there's yeah so in early may Uh, The snow was beginning to melt, and a Mansi hunter and his dog discovered what is known as the Dyatlov Pass Den. This was um, kind of a what was once a makeshift kind of shelter carved from snow in the woods about 250 feet from that cedar tree where the Yuris were found. Hmm. It's basically, it's like a deep hole in the snow with a floor of branches, And I had thought here, maybe that's why those cedar branches were kind of ripped off. Mm -hmm. Um, And it looked like, you know, they'd been ripping down the branches. But I also don't think that's very likely (laughs) because it was so far away. Yeah. Um, There were strips of cloth laying around in the den as well. Another search team, obviously, is called, um, and they use avalanche probes and find a piece of flesh. The remaining four bodies are found on excavation. They are lying together in a rocky stream bed under 10 feet of snow. So, last four autopsies. There were, it was described as, like, catastrophic injuries to three of them. Mm-hmm. So, Nikolai had a severely fractured skull described by some people as like caved in Mm -hmm. bone fragments were literally driven into his brain and some say that it happened shortly before his death but i can't necessarily confirm that alexander kalevatov had a quote-unquote deformed neck and was missing his eyebrows generally his injury seemed less severe but he was in the same location semyon zol Solitaryov and Ludmila had crushed chests, multiple broken bones. Um, the medical examiner stated that their injuries were comparable to what was seen, what is seen in a high-speed car wreck. They are also both missing their eyes. And then Ludmila had massive hemorrhage in the right ventricle of her heart, was missing her tongue, part of her upper lip some facial tissue and a fragment of her skull this is 
potentially due to decomposition, helped along by the fact that they were kind of lying in that stream. Mm. So, they kind of inventoried the clothing. Some victims were wearing clothes taken and cut from others. Like, the two by the cedar, the Yuris, were wearing practically nothing. Um, Ludmila's foot was wrapped in a piece of Yuri Kofonshenko's wool pants. Um, Semyon was in Ludmila's faux fur coat and hat. Basically, this all suggests that they were making use of the clothing of the deceased, or perhaps in the final states of hypothermia, they were removing clothing, believing that they were overheating. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily make sense to me because some of them were... It seemed like most of them were worn, you know? Like, you know. Yeah. Anyway. A lab test found that some of the clothing on the last four bodies were radioactive. Specifically, Alexander's and uh, Ludmila's. So those, again, Ludmila is the one that was, like, missing a bunch of parts. And Alexander is the one that was least injured, basically. In those four. A radiological expert who testified at some point here um, said that because they were lying in the stream, the levels were probably originally Much way higher. higher. On May 28th, Ivanov, this is just like, you know, weird timing. Ivanov closes the investigation on May 28th. Um, some people said it like seemed abrupt. <laughs> um, he concludes homicide was not a factor, which was his job. It was a homicide investigation. Mm -hmm. No homicide happened. His job is done. Yeah. So it isn't his job to figure out what did happen. It is his job to say whether or not homicide happened. So, from the report, here's a quote. He said, It should be concluded that the cause of the hikers' demise was an overwhelming force which they were not able to overcome. End quote. I wonder sometimes if... Uh, no, because this is... like Russian people think that this is really weird, too. But this, like that quote is cited a lot by people who are like what <laughs> what yeah. does that mean <laughs> i just yeah i think it seems obvious and that's not just a like a translation thing right i don't think so because like this is i mean this it is equally this is an equally popular mystery in russia okay so you know as is the Soviet way. <laughs> Several officials are punished and fired. Um, level of involvement notwithstanding. <laughs> so, right. the director of UPI, the chairman, the chairman of the UPI Sports Club, the local Communist Party secretary, or a local Communist Party secretary, chairman of two workers' unions, and a union inspector. Yeah. You know, either lost their job or were punished. Um, the area around Kolat Siakil was made off-limits for years. The evidence was stored and classified. The tent, though, it eventually became moldy and was disposed of. The area that they were headed for but never reached was named Dyatlov Pass in honor of them. The victims' families continued to write to officials up to and including Khrushchev, asking for the case to be re-examined to no avail. Wow. Yeah. Gotta have some balls to write to Khrushchev. Um, 
1990, Lev Ivanov published an article titled The Enigma of the Fireballs, or The Mystery of the Fireballs, Mm -hmm. depending on the translation. Basically, it claims he was pressured into censoring his report and not speculating on what happened, which makes sense. (laughs) Um, He reveals that they found burn marks on trees nearby and speculates about a heat tray or a UFO. Um, By this point, the official files were released and people were also raising questions about them. Mm -hmm. Like, what I gathered was this... It wasn't... There wasn't a whole lot of, like, media speculate... Like, this, this didn't blow up the way it has now. Yeah. Until... The files were released and Levy Vanov published that article and people were like, what? <laughs> like, that seems sketchy. Yeah. So, first theory, this was speculated by uh, Soviet authorities, is that the Mansi people uh, murdered the party in a ritual or maybe for camping on sacred ground. It would explain the a Mansi dwelling that was in the area, and that the group had seen Mansi writing along the route. Um, it would not explain that this is not really something the Mansi ever did. Um, like it, this theory is rooted in a misunderstanding of Mansi culture and rituals. They were really large. They are, I should say, largely a peaceful community. Were and are. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if this did happen. Why were the bodies in such different locations? Why did they have such different injuries? Yep. Um, a lot of the... Um, oh my gosh. Sources say that the autopsies stated... I didn't. I haven't read the autopsies. They're probably in Russian. I wouldn't understand them. <laughs> um, they apparently say that the some of these injuries were... They were so much force that it was not possible for a human to inflict it. So, if that's the case, that immediately rolls this out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, There were no footprints also besides those from the party. And that's, like, (laughs) that's the big one for me. Yeah, it's like, uh, maybe not. Yeah. So, the next theory is the KGB theory. It is basically the theory that um, Semyon Zolotaryov and maybe two others, potentially Yuri Krivonshenko, um, were KGB and on a mission to meet with CIA agents in the Urals to basically hand off false information. The idea is that the CIA got wise and killed the whole group. Hmm. So the evidence for is that there are like these weird gaps and inconsistencies apparently in Semyon's military records. It would explain his sudden addition to the group. Um, also, apparently, Yuri Kravonshenko once helped clear up a radioactive leak with the factory he was working with, which, again, was in a town which at the time was secret. And also, apparently a lot of people were low-level KGB informants at the time, which is wild to me. But, you know, against would be, why would they send a low-level informant to hand out false information to the CIA? Yeah. Why would they meet in the Ural Mountains? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know? So, 
another theory, which I think you might find interesting, is infrasound. I'm actually quite from or more familiar with this theory. Um, okay. I'm glad because I'm not super familiar with it. <laughs> so basically, infrasound is a unique weather event. High winds passing over the mountain could have caused it. Basically, it causes freq- vibrations below the frequency of human hearing, but may have caused... It apparently is known, quote-unquote, to cause panic attacks in humans. Maybe it caused a panic attack in the hikers and they fled their tent. It can cause insanity. Okay. So that would make way more sense than a panic attack. Because I don't think ever in a panic attack I've ever ran out of... No. Although my panic attacks manifest in really bad nausea and, like, chest pain. (laughs) So, um, basically, so, not to... But I just know a little bit about this. Yeah, go for it. Is so basically my understanding of like this phenomenon is basically so obviously the way that you stated is very much accurate. Is it causes causes vibrations below the frequency of human hearing? While that is true, it doesn't. It still has an effect on the human body. Yes, our bodies have a very intuitive way of surviving, and I think we kind of touched on this. Ironically enough, yeah, I think we, we touched did. on this in the last two episodes or the our first two episodes of the season. Yeah, but so basically, what it does is because you know, I, I should, wow, <laughs> I had just recently watched something about the Dyatlov Pass incident. Oh, okay, before we f- recorded those two, but so basically, there are some low level sounds that while we might not consciously be hearing, they are still hitting our eardrums, mm-hmm. and so we might not be hearing those. But they're having an effect. But they're having an effect. And this constant battering on our eardrums causes people to go insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that so, supposition. What that would explain was the swift exit from the tent, the injuries happening, you know, elsewhere, mm-hmm. away from the tent. It would not explain why the entire party necessarily had the same effect. Yeah. That seems odd. It also wouldn't explain why they didn't grab their gear or use the door. Yeah. Because. I mean, I guess I want, you lost your fucking mind. What I want to emphasize, though, in this is that. And maybe this is something that we get from just living in Alaska, which if so, I would assume living in Russia, you would get something pretty similar. There is like. Even leaving my home in the winter, Mm -hmm. I never leave without a coat. Yeah. Like, and a hat and scarves and, like, you know. Even if I'm in my car, I'm walking, I'm, like, going to the goddamn, uh, oh my gosh. Store. Mailbox. Ah. I bring a coat. Um, and it, if they are in the middle of this hike and they have done hikes like this before, or, you know, ski trips before... Mm -hmm they would be familiar with the effects that severe cold can have on the body and how important it is to bring your gear. Because that kind of cold can kill you. Yeah, yeah, very very quickly. Quickly, very easily. Mm -hmm. Like, not only did they not bring their gear, they cut their tent. Like, their tent is not usable. Yeah. (laughs) Like, so, it is just really... It is wild to me why they would have cut their tent and left all of their gear if they had 
if they knew what they were doing, which mm -hmm. by all accounts, it sounds like they knew what they were doing. Yeah. You know? So, next theory is the Yeti theory. I know you're excited <laughs> for this one. I I think this one is hilarious. <laughs> Pause for laughter. Yeah. You're, you're keeping the fact that I'm saying that in. Yes. That's so, hilarious. <laughs> Um, the Russian Yeti is called the Mank. M-E-N-K, although I'm pretty sure that's not how it's built in Russian. When some people saw uh, Ludmilla's face, they thought that must be the case. Um, what it would explain is there was a photo taken by the party of a skulking dark humanoid by a tree. Um, there was a, also, apparently, they wrote a parody newspaper, quote-unquote, which may have just been the the community journal, basically, mm -hmm. that had the line, the Yeti lives in the northern Urals near Mount Natorten. And then, of course, the injuries that couldn't have been inflicted by a human. What it would not explain is that the Yeti doesn't exist. Um, there are no other footprints at the scene. What the fuck is the motive? Why are there, you know, spaced out bodies? <laughs> I don't believe this theory, but I think it is so funny. <laughs> So, this is the only part of this that I'm going to argue with you on because while I do not disagree that this is by far the most unlikely, I find it hilarious that you are thinking that a Yeti would have a motive. It's a <laughs> That's it's true. potentially a fucking animal. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need a motive. But why would they have attacked them in the tent? You know, what would be the reason? Have you hungry? That 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 motive. Tent bears don't do that. Yeah, they fucking do. Well, I mean, bears do that because people put food into. Okay, yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. <laughs> are you with me now? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't know if people are as dumb in Russia to store foods in a separate, like food food in a separate tent that they're camping in, as they are in America, because it does happen. In America. <laughs> but anyway. So next theory is the UFO theory. Obviously, this is kind of triggered, in, at least in part, by Levy Vonov's 1990 article. Um, apparently, other campers in the area saw floating balls of light and basically some other weird shit over the Urals in February. Ivanov... Um, in his article, said, based on the evidence gathered, the role of UFOs in this tragedy was quite obvious. <laughs> Which, again, it, I think it is important to remember that UFO just means unidentified flying object. And I don't know for sure how specific that phrase is in Russia. You know what I mean? Because when we say it in America, it almost always means aliens. Yeah. Like... I don't know... Like, certified almost always. Yeah. I don't know about in Russia. So, next theory is the weapons testing theory. So, the idea is basically that a missile launch went sideways as heck. <laughs> um, forces the group from the tent and severely injures some. And then they basically either died from their injuries, exposures, or were killed by the military. Or the other theory is like they flee from the tent, the first two groups die of exposure, 
Um, and then the third, which is those last four, were hit by another round in the ravine. Um, claim There were some claims within the region of flashing lights and moving balls of fire in the direction or above the mountains. Uh, there was a group camping about 500 kilometers from the Dyatlov group um, on the same night that apparently saw strange orange orbs in the sky over Kolitsyakil. Some say that could have been distant explosions. Basically, these those theories, like those sightings, mm -hmm. are used both in like UFOs and weapons testings and maybe combine the two, you know? Yeah, well, <laughs> because well. technically when you don't know... Hey, is that a missile? Still technically a UFO. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, Lev Ivanov's 1990 article helps out here. Um, he claimed he was ordered to censor his report and not speculate on what happened, which I, when I read that, I was kind of like, bro. Well, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to speculate. You're supposed I would say, to even if you are not being suppressed, facts. yeah. Even if you are not being suppressed, your job, if it is just to determine if there was a crime and there wasn't a crime, why would you be expected to speculate? Yeah, you know? on anything beyond that. So, basically, he also mentions, like, char marks on trees near the bodies, quote, confirmed a source of heat ray, unquote. He suggests UFOs, weapons testing, or UFOs from the Soviet military. So... In 2008, there was a three-peat, three a three-foot-long piece of metal found in the area. The Dyatlov Foundation, which we'll talk about later, um, they took possession of it and claim it is part of a Soviet ballistic missile. Um, the Dyatlov Foundation was mostly founded by the families. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many... Or what kind of experts they have. What I will say. Is that it seems. Like. You would need to be very sure. Or have a lot of balls. To claim this kind of thing. About the Soviet government. When you are. I mean in 2008 they weren't. It was True. Soviet Russia. But you know. It's still. It's a good point. It's still the Russian government. <laughs> and. Yeah no you, you don't want to fuck with that. Unless you're sure, you know. So, what this would explain is the radioactive clothing. Um, Ivanov's supervisor, Yevgeny Okashev, in 2013, he said that he found the instructions to test for radioactivity suspicious. Mm -hmm. Because he didn't know why you would. <laughs> you know, like, why would you test... Why, why is the... Why is there a need for testing for radioactivity? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> apparently, he asked his supervisors why the need was there. And then dep the deputy prosecutor general dodged questions and then eventually ordered the team to rule the deaths accidental. Hmm. At the funeral, bodies the bodies were said to look to have kind of like an orangey withered look. Mm -hmm. But they also were partially mummified by the cold. So, <laughs> could explain that. What it wouldn't explain is the lack of evidence of other people if the military was there to kill off any survivors. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, again, footprints of party, but nobody else. Um, no other, like, 
like the snow wasn't pressed down in the form of equipment, you know. Mm -hmm. Why would they stage a scene <laughs> so bizarre? Um, there was a mass declassification of Soviet era documents at you know one point, and no evidence of secret weapon testing base in that area were found. And radioactivity is only found in those by the stream, and even them, it is not enough to indicate a weapon. I would be interested to know what levels <laughs> would indicate a weapon, and if it's possible for that amount to have washed off them in the stream yeah. in the time. So... The last theory we've got is the avalanche, which is kind of the most widely expected, accepted, I mean, especially the slab avalanche theory. So a slab avalanche is based, is like a compacted block of snow that slides down a slope when the underlying snow layer, snow layer <laughs> gives way. Um, it may have been helped along by things like pitching of the tent, high winds in the area, you know. The theory goes that the group flees the tent in a hurry, either after or immediately before the avalanche hits. Um, if this is what happened, it is more likely it was before it hit because there are no drag marks in the snow. Mm -hmm. um, they may have been alerted to an incoming avalanche by the telltale sound of snow collapsing if they had, you know, been out in similar areas before they may know, like, if not have heard it before, they may know mm -hmm. that is a sound that comes before an avalanche. They may have attempted to escape what they perceived as the danger zone by getting into the tree line, and then they die of exposure. Those in the ravine, perhaps, fell into it or were injured trying to create a shelter, which would explain the massive injuries. It would explain leaving tent in, like leaving the tent in a hurry, the injuries beyond the capabilities of man, or the missing tissue would have been due to animals or decomposition. It would not explain that no avalanche debris was found. There was no damage to the tree line. Um, locals familiar with the area say it just doesn't make sense for the area. Mm -hmm. There was no avalanche recorded in the area before or since. The original investigation concluded the slope was too shallow to generate an avalanche. Um, the injuries to the three in the stream bed were ruled incapacitating, and no drag marks, again, led away from the tent. There were just footprints and eight or nine sets. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a little less, you know, you can take or leave that particular piece of evidence, because it could also be explained by they left the tent before the avalanche hit. And then, why would experienced hikers camp in an area that they thought was vulnerable to an avalanche? And I just... Okay, I'll get into that later. <laughs> so, the aftermath. In 2000, the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation established was established by friends and families of victims. The purpose is to honor the memory of the party and seek the truth. The president at the time that I read this article um, was Yuri Konsevich, who attended um, some of the funerals of the victims when he was 12. 
He studied and taught at UPI, which is now called the Ural State Technical Institute or Technical University, Ural State Technical University, and had also joined the sports club. <laughs> he has led tours of Dyatlov Pass or to Dyatlov Pass, um, and he has stated that Russians typically believe one of two theories. One is that the party stumbled into an area where secret weapons were being tested, and two is that the party was killed by mercenaries, probably American spies slash CIA. He believes the first, um, and apparently he says that most of the families do as well. So Yuri Yudin, who's the one who dropped out because of the sciatica flare-up, he mm -hmm. died in 2013, always believing that the deaths were not natural. Shortly before his death, he claimed that the rest of the party was murdered after being taken from the tent at gunpoint. Dubinina may have had her tongue cut out because she was outspoken. Um, he, I think, he was quoted as saying something like, they were taken from me, which really tells you the kind of mindset that he had, like how he was feeling about the whole thing. Yeah. How guilty he felt, yeah, which sucks. In 2019, the Russian authorities reopened the case, but they were only going to consider weather, basically. <laughs> um, they concluded that there was no criminal activity, and in July of 2020, they concluded the hikers were pushed out of their tent after an avalanche and died of hypothermia. Later, um, obviously, that area was named Dial Pass in, or in honor of the expedition. And there was a monument erected in Mihailo Cemetery in Yekaterinburg, which I believe is also where they are buried. So, in conclusion, I don't think I can give any phone numbers to be like, if you have a suspicion, because it's Russia. Yeah. <laughs> and the case is closed. And it's Russia. And it's Russia. Yeah. So And maybe not right now. Yeah. Maybe not right now. My biggest <laughs> thing about this is I genuinely I feel okay. I was going into this to research for this, expecting to come out of it thinking it was an avalanche. But I don't <laughs> I have never thought it was an av avalanche. I think, and here's my reasoning. Actually, I want I want to hear what you think before I. I. This is my reasoning. Just because there's snow on top of it like that, that's not indicative of, a, of an avalanche. Avalanches don't do that. That whole thing would be covered if there had been an avalanche. That also, shit would have been knocked down. Yeah, and I don't know if the skis were stand or if the, you know, students maybe stuck them up, mm -hmm. but it does seem weird. It would have covered up the that's footprints. Not how that's exactly mm -hmm. avalanche wouldn't have done that and i like and depending on the size of the avalanche i think you mentioned it is that the trees would have been knocked over mm -hmm. there was no debris. avalanches are fucking powerful they are a, a they're like, a snow tsunami when we when we drive past the mountains <laughs> you can see even where like little balls of like not an avalanche but like little balls mm -hmm. of snow have like rolled down you or, can also see where an avalanche has come down because and alaska looks, we're pretty common that looks flat like flat. see the way that this guy is crouching that yeah. is not on a slope yeah like no that is flat flat this i is... and like i don't think i saw a single source 
that said, oh yeah, avalanches do happen in that area. Every source said no. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, pretty much everybody says, avalanches don't really happen in that area. Yeah. And there has never been one recorded. Yeah. I agree with you that I don't think it's a Yeti. I, I think, honestly, the most compelling theory for, for me after I learned about it is, honestly, the infrasound. Okay. I was thinking... I know that's scary, but... Yes, I, I was thinking that's the one that's most likely to me. I think it, it, it explains the most. Um, and I really would not put it past Russian authorities to keep a secret base secret to this day especially because of the deal of like yeah. the the incident happening yeah and s certainly i wouldn't put it past soviet officials to destroy documents that proved the existence oh absolutely and and also a uh, death mountain yeah <laughs> hyperbole much yeah um did i use that right yes <laughs> so it's, it's been a minute since I've had to use the word hyperbole, so I was like, hold on, let me check. Um, really, again, going, um, again, going Occam's razor on this, I think once they are out of the tent, I think we can explain what happened pretty well. Like, I don't think there's a lot of mystery in yeah. that. But what caused them to cut out? Not, yes. not just leave the tent, cut out of the tent so and they flee cannot without. use it again. And they don't have any of their gear. Whatever on. they were scared of was imminent. If, if they get away from whatever they are scared of, they are then stuck out in a situation in that will kill them. Yeah. That they know will kill them. Yeah. Without their gear. Mm -hmm. And that is like. That is, I think, the biggest mystery is not necessarily how they died. It is why they left the tent. Because that would have... That would help identify yes. about, like, 90% of the issues. So... Because it is... What, it, what was so severe that dying in the elements was something they either were not were so panicked that they could not consider that possibility. Mm -hmm. Or whatever they were scared of was so imminent that that seemed like a better option. Yeah. I think, for me, the some of the weirdest parts of it is due to... Or the, some of the, like they, the, the weirdest deaths for me are... Um, Nikolai Kolevatov, um, Solorov. Oh God, I was I was on it, and then I was all target. That's a uh, Semyon, Semyon, and Dumanina. Theirs are just mm -hmm. so far bizarre for me because now, granted, um, also I apologize. This is kind of gonna get squeamish again. Missing eyes. I mean, if they had to... <sighs> okay, this happened in February? Yeah. It could have snowed since then, because they were discovered yeah. under 10 feet of snow. 
And so lying together in a rocky stream bed under 10 feet of snow. Now, while it might not have been a full avalanche, snow could have sloughed off. Mm-hmm. And they were also, them. I don't think I made this very clear when we initially talked about the, the Outlove Den. Mm-hmm. This was down a ravine. Mm-hmm. So, like, they were at the bottom of a ravine. Yeah. So, I really do think it is weird to me in that if falling off of, falling into the ravine caused their death, caused those injuries. Uh-huh. The only thing that is weird to me about that is that Kalevatov isn't injured. So, unless he maybe, everyone else fell off. And he, well, he had a skittered deformed. down. Well, and I'm missing eyebrows. What? Yeah, what the fuck is that? Deformed <laughs> you know? neck, missing eyebrows. Because deformed neck, like, to me, my first thought is, okay, broken neck. But it doesn't say that, you know? Exactly. Deformed. Like, I think that might that be a mean? translation thing in that it would make more sense if... If broken neck. Yeah. Broken neck or Generally, maybe, like, injured. severe injuries. Yeah, which... The deformed neck was also straight up not mentioned in some sources. Mm-hmm. So I don't feel like it's very... It probably isn't a broken neck is what mm-hmm. I'm thinking. It probably is, like, maybe twisted in a weird direction or... Mm-hmm. Like, there's a part of me that has zero desire to see any of the photos that were taken. They're weird. I've accidentally stumbled across them and it really, like... They don't look dead in a lot of them. Like... Even Dubonina, who has the really bad face facial injuries and is missing her eyes and stuff, uh huh. She doesn't look dead. She doesn't look like she's missing her eyes. Like <laughs> it's really weird. Okay, now you're just making me not want to look this up because I know I'm probably gonna have <laughs> nightmares about it. I have it has made it hard for me to sleep. <laughs> you should look it up. Unless you are prepared for that and also it is like the morning. Yeah, because I said a missing tongue part because she very easily during a fall could have bitten off her tongue. Yeah. And, her and then scavengers and decomposition for the rest. Like really once again, once they are outside of the tent, I feel like I can explain all of, of that it. stuff. Like, like even if it's maybe not the best thing in the world, like the, mm-hmm. the most likely in the world, I can explain it where it makes sense, you know? Mm-hmm. It is them leaving the tent that I don't, I just cannot wrap my mind around. Yeah. Why would they do it willingly? I think, honestly, again, I think that leads back to the infrasound because it doesn't necessarily have to be all of them experiencing it, but one of them to go batshit. Well, Cut the also- tent. And then the rest of them have to, uh, you know, try and find cover. There's but why wouldn't they go together? Folly do madness of two. The, like, you can basically share a delusion. Mm-hmm. So if, like, especially, hypothetically, Dyatlov, because he's kind of the leader. Dyatlov, or I would say Semyon, because he's the oldest and, yeah. you know, well, and would be very well respected. in his mouth and the gray foam yeah. coming from the right cheek. That almost indicates to me, like, um, poison, something, bad reaction to something. Mm-hmm. So I'm losing it. My thought is if one of them got really, really bad and uh, everybody else is a little bit affected by it, mm-hmm. it could just be that they all just shared madness shared yeah 
But, I but think... to be grouped up in pairs. In, yeah, in Pairs and a group of four. Because mm-hmm. well, two of them really. were together. Okay. So two of them were together the... but spaced out. No. I mean, kind yes. of. So the two Yuris were together under that tree. And yeah. then the four in the ravine. And then Semyon, Dyatlov, and... Semyon was in the Sen- ravine, I Sinan. thought. No. Oh, yes, you're right. Um... It's do it it's back up. Zineda, Dyatlov, and then there was one. Oh, Rosem, who they were all spaced out, kind of on the way back to the tent. And when when you when people describe this timeline, they kind of act like they were all together. But again, because I've seen the pictures, <laughs> which I again did not intentionally look up, they are kind of disturbing. They are especially disturbing because you, I mean, they look alive. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they are very spaced out. Like it genuinely looks like they're walking back and they dropped one by one, which is disturbing. But also, I think lends credence to the hypothermia theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is genuinely like. I really do think they probably did just freeze to death. You know, yeah. their injuries and freezing killed them. Mm-hmm. And I can think of a lot of ways to explain the injuries. Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about that people are going to be mad about if we don't talk about. Ripping off um, the two Yuris looking like they had tried to either climb the tree or rip branches down from the tree. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Because my thought is they were also by a campfire. Mm-hmm. I, which, again, I think they're burns. They were by a campfire. Yeah. <laughs> or a weapon, but... <laughs> yeah. So... I mean, I think... <sighs> this is one of those things... Where as much as I don't want to look at the photos, I want to go find the photos so that I have some frame of reference because I'm a very visual person. As someone who snow machines and goes out in the outdoors very regularly, I always have a mental plan of Mm -hmm. what if something goes wrong? Yeah. Your best bet for (sighs) the issue with winter when you're trying to burn something and keep yourself warm and alive is broken branches that have already dried. Mm-hmm. The issue is when you had snow to that, they're often wet mm-hmm. and they're not going to light. So what do you do? We can't necessarily always rip them from the trees because the trees are bringing in water. And yeah. so they're already wet too. If you didn't know this was a thing, this, yeah. this is a thing. <laughs> trees hold moisture so for any trees that die or go down they aren't it's called like green yeah yeah so you have to let branches versus trees that are cut that are cut down or that die once you cut them you have to let them dry out for like at minimum a year before they're usable as good firewood so depending on if this tree was dead i could see why they had climbed it and ripped the branches to do that but and i can imagine having torn skin and clothing because like oh, yeah. if you f- 
slip and fall dude that fucking sucks well and or if they were climbing the tree simply to look for other members of their party yeah Which or is- when you are i mean again to explain the like the blood and the skin and stuff on the branches well and okay they, and the skin i'm you, sorry that sounds very when like get- when i what i'm imagining here is i'm a mat what i'm is a very like grotesque yeah like, but it's just like gore film skin not, fragments yeah yeah not skin yeah skin cells fragments like like if you like so ollie's obviously here mm. and i was working with Papa on the argo i didn't have most of those marks before my skin is all over my house from working on projects where i've accidentally nicked myself or mm-hmm. scraped myself my yeah and everywhere in my damn house. What I will say is that when you're cold, even just a little cold, you lose coordination, especially in your mm-hmm. extremities, very quickly. Yep. Hands and hands. <laughs> and this feet is like first. even if like you have been in an, a cold office and you're trying to type, yep. like that is harder than being in a warm office. Oh, yeah. So I can definitely see them just being clumsier and getting hurt in mm-hmm. that way, falling in the fire mm-hmm. in that way. Oh yeah. Your, your body starts to shut down once you reach a certain temperature because all the blood in your body is rushing to protect your internal organs. Mm-hmm. Again, this leads back to, we don't know why they left the tent. Yeah. Why the hell would they have not br- bought any of their gear? Uh, mm-hmm. Well, okay. Because Zin- uh, Ludmila brought her coat and her hat. So that actually maybe lends cre- led some credence to the group madness mm-hmm. well she may have or one of the other members of the group may have you know yeah and i just don't know you know i think the weapons testing theory is very compelling compelling to me so is the infrasound theory so we're gonna not gonna solve it this time huh? <laughs> no not 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 yeah. like i mean this is a genuinely wild one this is one that, like, I really wanted to come out of this, like thinking, having it, like having an internal answer. And genuinely, this was like I was going into this one hundred percent expecting I was going to come out of it believing it was an avalanche. Mm-hmm. But I just don't anymore. I really don't think that's what happened. This has been the case of the Dyatlov Expedition, a mysterious event killing nine Russian skiers in nineteen fifty nine in the Ural Mountains. Thank you for listening to today's episode of A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears, recorded and produced by Ollie and Belle. Please check out all of our social media where we have additional information shared. You can find all of those links at our website at awmpa.com. We'd love to hear your feedback for our podcast, so be sure to rate and review. Tune in next week for another episode of A Wild Mystery Podcast Appears. Bye.